This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, our theme is Fear Not, a Child is Born. In the first half, Lloyd Newell, voice and writer for Music and the Spoken Word and BYU professor of Church History and Doctrine, shares his talk, Fear Not. Then in the second half, we'll hear Elder Bruce D. Porter on A Child is Born. Now, Lloyd Newell. grateful to be with you on this cold December morning, and I pray that the warmth of the Spirit will bless us that we might be edified during our few moments together. Today I want to talk with you about the greatest story ever told, and one of its less obvious but most important themes. You could probably recite much of it by heart. It occupies little more than a page of scripture. It begins with the familiar duty of paying taxes. It continues with a journey that was most unusual, uh, not unusual rather, for the time. The plot thickens when no room can be found in the inns. It culminates when the Son of God is born of Mary, a precious and chosen virgin. We know little about the real people and few details regarding the true events. And yet, no matter how many times we read the story of the first Christmas, There always seems to be something new we can learn from it. That's because, as prophets have taught, the Word of God is quick or living. It takes on fresh and deeper meaning whenever we are spiritually ready to receive it. Something that stands out to me in the account of the Savior's birth is that on four separate occasions, an angel appears with the message, Fear not. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Zacharias with news that his wife would bear a son, the forerunner of the Messiah, he said, Fear not, for thy prayer is heard. Later, the same angel visited beautiful and fair Mary to tell her that she would be the mother of the Son of God, assuring her with similar words, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Shortly thereafter, an angel appeared to Joseph the carpenter in a dream and said, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. And then on that holy night, as all eternity watched in reverent silence, the angel came upon humble shepherds keeping watch over their flock. The shepherds, who were sore afraid, heard the angel proclaim, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. So much of what happened during those pivotal moments in the Nativity narrative depended upon the courage of people like Zacharias, Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds. God had a monumental task for each of them. Their lives were about to change forever. Imagine if they had let fear overcome them. What if they had pulled back? doubted, and failed to do what God needed them to do. This less obvious theme from the account of the first Christmas intrigues me because I, like you, have fears, and I need to be reminded at times to fear not. I don't know what your fears are. You may have fears about your family, like Zacharias, who feared that he would never have children. Or maybe your fear isn't that you won't have children, but that you will have children whom you have to raise in a toxic world, increasingly hostile to families. 
Like Mary, you may have an assignment or responsibility that seems far beyond your abilities. Like Joseph, you may fear getting married or that you will never get married. Like the shepherds, you may be sore afraid when your peaceful, simple life is disrupted because God has plans for you that are bigger than what you had for yourself. Life presents endless opportunities to fear. We may fear what people think of us. We may fear failure or rejection. We may be afraid of changes we know we must make in our lives. Or maybe we're just afraid of next week's final exams. We may experience failure or rejection and wonder if we have what it takes. We may have financial fears, educational and career fears, or fears of public speaking, snakes, or spiders. Yes, we live in a beautiful world, but it can be scary out there. Now, I fear that so many of you have come this morning to be edified and inspired, and now I've gone and frightened you. Well, I didn't come here to frighten you, and you didn't come here to be reminded of your fears. We all long for more of God's peace and strength in the midst of the stresses and difficulties of life. The Lord's message to you today is the same message he sent through his angels so long ago. Fear not. He can say that because he knows more than we do. He sees what we cannot see. He knows what's coming, and in the eternal scheme of things, it's not as bad as we may think. He knows that we can handle it with his help because he knows how to strengthen and succor us. Most of all, he tells us not to fear because he knows that fear will paralyze us. It will keep us from knowing and doing his will, accepting his blessings, his love and his light, and fulfilling his purposes. As President Howard W. Hunter said, Fear is a principal weapon in the arsenal that Satan uses to make mankind unhappy. He who fears loses strength for the combat of life in the fight against evil. Therefore, the power of the evil one always tries to generate fear in human hearts. A timid, fearing people cannot do their work well, and they cannot do God's work at all. Latter-day Saints have a divinely assigned mission to fulfill that simply must not be dissipated in fear and anxiety." End quote. Satan wants us to give in to fear. God wants us to hold on to hope. One of my favorite scriptures is found in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. It reads, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Using these words as a framework, let us explore together how, how these things can serve as antidotes for fear. First, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power. This spirit of power is not the world's sort of power, the Lord and his covenant people do not work the way the world usually works. The world tells us that power comes of wealth or popularity, that life is a competition in which we advance ahead of others by acquiring more, 
by brandishing words or weapons of destruction. The Lord's way is deeper, higher, holier. His power is governed by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge. Where worldly power depends on dramatic demonstrations, the Lord's power distills upon us as the dews from heaven, miraculously, but quietly and humbly. Where worldly power is for the privileged few, the Lord's power is available to all. It is manifest in the ordinances of the priesthood. We access it through making and keeping sacred covenants. We nurture it through sincere prayer, fasting, and feasting upon the words of Christ. Perhaps you know someone who has this kind of power and therefore seems fearless. It's probably someone that uh, would be judged by worldly standards as weak, but his or her spiritual power is undeniable. My father, who died in an accident nearly 30 years ago, was such a man. Still today, I meet people who say to me, he was the kindest man I've ever known. He worked in a steel mill, not the most glamorous or prestigious of occupations, and I'm embarrassed to say that when I was young, I wished he were smarter, cooler, richer. Thankfully, I've grown up since then, and today there is no one I admire more. I doubt any of you have ever spent a day at a steel mill, but let's just say that it's not the quietest or cleanest environment. Power in that setting is usually asserted through gruffness and crude language. And yet my father, in his more than three decades there, was never known to swear or to speak an unkind word. He never even raised his voice. After he died, his co-workers told us what that they could always count on him to be pleasant and positive, regardless of the circumstances. We found curled up in his lunchbox several church pamphlets that he faithfully studied during his lunch break and often shared with his co-workers, many of whom became active in the church because of his goodness and example. That is fearless power. It's the kind of power that comes to those who trust God and have faith in Jesus Christ, faith to do things His way, even if they differ from the world's way. That faith is more than mere positive thinking or motivational rah-rah, as the Prophet Joseph Smith taught. Faith is power. It inspires and empowers us to do remarkable and courageous things that we would not be able to do otherwise. Truly, this kind of faith gives us the power and confidence that will wax strong in the presence of God and all people. If you are fearful because you feel powerless, I invite you to turn to the Lord. Draw upon the power of the covenants you have made and are keeping. Trust in God's power, for it is mightier than any power on earth. His words to ancient Israel are also his words to you. I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Next in Paul's list of fear-banishing virtues is love. As both Paul and Mormon taught, 
Perfect love casteth out all fear. Anyone who has served a mission knows what I'm talking about. A full-time mission, if you think about it, would be a petrifying experience if it weren't for love. Love for God and for all his children. But tens of thousands of young men and women, include many of you, do it every year because God has granted them the gift of Christ-like love. We all know young missionaries who couldn't even spell Guatemala, let alone find it on a map when they got their mission call. But by the time they returned, they had the Guatemalan flag hanging on their bedroom wall and memories of beloved Guatemalan people in their hearts. Some missionaries receive this gift of love before they even leave. Others don't find it until well into their service. But every missionary, at some point or another, has to learn to love the people, or else their mission will be miserable. This was the greatest lesson I learned as a missionary in Argentina many years ago. Throughout my mission, I did my best, and we were blessed with success. But my first year was different from my second year. The first year, my motives were not completely pure. I wanted to lead the mission in baptisms, to move up the mission ladder, to impress others. Thankfully, I was matched with a more consecrated companion who showed me how to love and enjoy the people more, how to serve them with heart and soul, how to forget myself and go to work with love. My focus and motives changed. I truly got a new heart, and I came home different than when I left. Perhaps the most stunning example of the power of love to overcome fear comes from the Sons of Mosiah and their remarkable mission to the Lamanites. I don't think we fully appreciate how courageous they were. The Lamanites weren't merely apathetic toward the gospel. They were openly hostile. They were sworn enemies who routinely killed Nephites just for being Nephites, not exactly golden contacts. So why did the sons of Mosiah do it? They were desirous that salvation should be declared to every creature, for they could not bear that any human soul should perish, yea, even the very thoughts that any soul should endure endless torment did cause them to quake and tremble. Their intense love was so powerful that they simply had to share the gospel with everyone. They couldn't bear not to. When we love with that kind of strength and sincerity, we overcome fear. Of course, love conquers fear, not just in missionary work, but in all aspects of life. When young Gordon Hinckley and Marjorie Pay were engaged to be married, Gordon began to worry about the economic realities of marriage during the Depression-ridden 1930s. He called his fiancée and said that they needed to talk. They agreed to meet over lunch. I think you should know, he told her, that I only have $150 to my name. He added that he only made $185 a month. Marjorie put his fears to rest with her unexpected, optimistic response. Oh, that will work out just fine. If you've got $150, we're set. Reflecting on her thoughts that day, Marjorie said, I had hoped for a husband, and now I was getting $150, too. 
Sister Hinckley's love and faith empowered her to fear not as they started their lives together, a marriage that would become nearly seven decades of love and faith and service. Love gives meaning to life, even amid life's uncertainties. It's what keeps us going when we feel like giving up. It can be what gets us up in the morning and what settles us into sweet dreams at night. Love is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has no end and no limits. It remains when all else fails. Love never quits and never runs out. It simply endures and overcomes. Indeed, it never faileth. We cannot look to the world for that kind of love. All you have to do is examine the ways popular culture uses the term love, and it's obvious that Satan just doesn't get it. Always, love's counterfeits slip quickly into thinly veiled selfishness, lust, pride, and even hatred. God, on the other hand, not only understands love, he is love. In fact, our expressions of love are but echoes and approximations of the continuous and unlimited love of God. Our efforts to nurture love would fail were it not for infusions of divine love along the way. Ultimately, all love comes from God. The more we seek Him, the more we will feel His love working a mighty change in our hearts and in the hearts of those we love. What could we fear when filled with such love? Several years ago, on a cold winter night, some of our extended family volunteered to serve dinner in a homeless shelter during the Christmas season. At first, some of the younger children were a bit frightened by the sights and smells and sounds of the inner-city shelter. They had never been so close to such distress before. But in time, a, a little Christmas miracle took place. As we served the hot meal, we all began to interact with the homeless residents. We exchanged smiles, laughter, and small talk. Then the singing started. No one really remembers who began to sing first. Perhaps one of the residents or one of the children. But before long, everyone was singing Christmas carols. The room filled with the sweet spirit of Christmas. It became like a great party, almost a family reunion. They were no longer strangers, but brothers and sisters, children of the same God. It was powerful, personal, and poignant, a night never to be forgotten. It reminded me of a passage from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, when Scrooge's nephew Fred rather boldly defends Christmas against his uncle's bah humbugs. He describes Christmas as a good time, a kind forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people around them as if they really were fellow passengers and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. No heavenly angels sang that night at the shelter, at least not in the literal sense. But heaven seemed close. We felt love, love for God, each other, and all humanity. As the evening ended and we stepped back into the cold night, 
we each felt the joy and meaning of Christmas more deeply. The stars shone a little brighter, and we all felt a little closer to a few of our fellow passengers on life's common journey. If you are fearful, whatever your fears may be, I invite you to turn to the Lord and trust in His love, His goodness, His grace. It is mightier than any force on earth. His loving words to the early saints are also His words to you. Fear not, little children, for you are mine, and I have overcome the world. Finally, in addition to power and love, God has given us the spirit of a sound mind to dispel fear. What does it mean to have a sound mind? The word sound means safe, secure, reliable. And how do we achieve a sound mind? By anchoring ourselves to the safest, most secure, most reliable rock in the ocean, the Lord Jesus Christ and His restored gospel. You and I and the rest of the world are in the midst of an intellectual storm, a hurricane of philosophies and ideologies, with winds of doctrine tossing many of us to and fro, groups and individuals who are antagonistic toward religion in general, Christianity in particular, and Latter-day Saints specifically, are gaining in influence and spreading their deceptive messages. Their goal is simple to destroy faith. And sadly, we all have friends or loved ones who have become their victims. In such circumstances, it is not easy to keep a sound mind or avoid becoming fearful. Only those who have anchored their lives firmly to the Savior will survive. Or to use imagery that perhaps is more familiar in landlocked Provo than hurricanes and anchors, Consider the beautiful mountains that stand just outside this building. The phrase, the shadows of the everlasting hills, comes to mind. They seem pretty stable and permanent, don't they? They don't look like they're going away anytime soon. But as reliable as those mountains look, I would never stake my spiritual safety on them. I think that may be in part what Isaiah was trying to say when he prophesied, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Isaiah continues, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of God shall stand forever. Do you remember how green the grass used to be on campus just a few months ago? Do you remember the colorful flowers that once adorned the courtyards? Seems like a distant memory on a day like today, doesn't it? Well, compared to the Word of God, all of the dogmas, kingdoms, and institutions of man are about as permanent as the withering grass and the fading flower. If I had placed my trust in something so fleeting, I would definitely be fearful. That's certainly not the product of a sound mind. No, in this storm, I'd much rather take my refuge in the Word of God. That is what Jacob, the brother of Nephi, did. He feasted on the scriptures, delighting in them, cherishing them. So when the charismatic and persuasive Sherem came along, seeking to overthrow the doctrine of Christ, leading away many hearts, and eventually targeting Jacob specifically, 
Jacob could not be shaken. He had simply had too many spiritual experiences with eternal truth to ever be deceived by any counterfeit. If you and I can follow Jacob's example and build our lives on the firm foundation of the word of Christ, we will receive an additional blessing beyond immunity to deception. In moments when we need correction or when serious questions and doubts arise or when further revelation is necessary to spur us to greater action, we will not become offended, upset, impatient, or deceived. In fact, we will rejoice to meekly receive more of the divine word we love so much. When Jacob had to speak reproving words to his people, he noted that the words of truth are hard against all uncleanness, but the righteous fear them not, for they love the truth and are not shaken. To those who are pure in heart, he observed, the word of God is pleasing and they feast on his word because their minds are firm forever. Can you see how men and women with a sound mind anchored firmly to the gospel of Jesus Christ have no need to fear when testimony and true conversion burn in their hearts and in their heads? They are unfazed by the latest fads and philosophies of men because they recognize them for what they are and they are unafraid to receive truth, even if it requires them to change. Nephi said of such humble yet rock-solid souls, He that is built upon the rock receiveth truth with gladness, while he that is built upon a sandy foundation trembleth, lest he shall fall. Let us take courage in these vigorous words from a favorite hymn. They are written as if from the Lord's own mouth. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Truly, a firm foundation can uphold us as we face all kinds of difficulties in life, sickness, health, poverty, wealth, deep waters, fiery darts, and fiery trials. For the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I cannot, desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. The Lord stands ready to help. I invite you to turn to the Lord and build upon his firm foundation. It is mightier and more permanent than any foundation on earth. The world needs your spiritual power, your love and light, your sound mind and heart. The Lord's words to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery are also his words to you. Fear not, little flock, do good. Let earth and hell combine against you, for if ye are built upon my rock, they cannot prevail. Look unto me in every thought. Doubt not, fear not. I don't know whether I was part of the heavenly choir that sang glory to God 
on the night of that first Noel. But I certainly can add my humble witness to that of the angels. I testify that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and because unto us was born that day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, we have no need to fear, for he has indeed brought with him peace on earth and goodwill toward men. I testify that these good tidings are for all people, including me and including you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Fear Not, A Child Is Born. We've just heard from Lloyd Newell. After the break, we'll return with Elder Bruce Porter for A Child Is Born. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Fear Not, A Child Is Born. Now Elder Bruce D. Porter of the Seventy, with his address, A Child Is Born. My beloved students, faculty, and friends of Brigham Young University, I must say that you are a marvelous sight, and Susan and I are honored and full of gratitude to be with you today. We always feel tender feelings when we return to BYU, as this is where we met and were engaged. We met in a religion class called Your Religious Problems. <laughs> I have forgotten many of the details of the class, but I do know that whatever my religious problem was, she solved it. <laughs> and whatever her problem was, well, I hope I solved it too. In a very short while, your final exams will end and you will return to family or friends for Christmas. In view of the approaching Yuletide season, I have chosen to share with you today a Christmas message, a message of hope and glad tidings, even my assurance of, and witness of the birth, life, and eternal Lordship of Jesus Christ the Son of God. More than 700 years before his birth, Isaiah prophesied of Christ in words memorialized by Georg Friedrich Handel in the Messiah Oratorio. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In this one concise sentence, Isaiah foretells Christ's birth, His second coming, His millennial reign, and His eternal mission as the mighty God and Father of our salvation. Handel's Messiah also brings to glorious musical life the following admonition from Isaiah. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid, say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Brothers and sisters, join with me and behold your God.
Behold your God, born as a little child in Bethlehem and wrapped in swaddling clothes. Behold your God, born in poverty and simplicity, that he might walk among common people as a common man. Behold your God, even the infinite and eternal Redeemer, the Messiah, veiled in flesh and come to live upon the very earth which he created. Return with me to that sacred first Christmas in Bethlehem to contemplate the birth of our Lord. He came in the quiet of the night, in the meridian of time, he who was Emmanuel, the rod of Jesse, the day spring, the key of David, the very Lord of might. His birth marked the promised visitation of the Creator to earth, the condescension of God to man. As Isaiah wrote of the event, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the shadow, they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. We know from modern revelation that Jesus was born on April 6th, making it springtime in Judea when the anointed King of Israel came to earth. As Micah had prophesied, he was born in Bethlehem, little among the thousands of Judah. The village of his birth lay in the shadow of mighty Jerusalem, six miles to the north. Jerusalem was the capital city of Judea, seat of the temple, and bastion of Roman power. Bethlehem, by contrast, was a pastoral town, homespun and agrarian in all its ways. Its only claim to fame was as the birthplace of David, the ancient king of Israel, who established the Davidic line through whom Christ would be born. Hence, the little village was commonly known as the city of David. Its Hebrew name, Bethlehem, meant house of bread. It was a name of no particular significance until he was born who would be known the bread of life. The fields surrounding Bethlehem were home to numerous flocks of sheep, and the month of April was a traditional birthing season for the use of the flock. In their awkward role of midwives to the animals, the shepherds would have stayed up most of the night, laboring beneath the crystal sky of the desert plateau. Hence, the angels who heralded his birth would have had no need to wake the shepherds. The boy child who arrived that birthing season was known as the Lamb of God. It is a title of deep significance, for he arrived with the lambs, and he would someday be brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Yet paradoxically, he was also the Good Shepherd, one who cares for the lambs. Thus, in a curious way, the twin symbols of his life would represent both those who serve and those who are served. It was only right that Christ should play both roles, for in life he descended below all things, 
and in eternity he ascended on high and is in and through and round about all things. He knew life from every side and every angle, both above and below. He was the greatest who made himself least, the heavenly shepherd who became a lamb. His coming was more than simply the birth of a great prophet, the advent of a promised heir to the royal throne, or even the arrival of the only perfect person who ever would walk the earth. It was all of that, of course, but it was something far more. His birth was the coming of the God of heaven to walk upon his footstool and be like man almost. In the words of a famous carol, He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. Jesus Christ was the creator of the world and the great Jehovah of the Old Testament. It was his voice that resounded on Mount Sinai, his power that upheld chosen Israel in its wanderings, his presence revealed to Enoch, to Moses, to all the prophets that foretold of his coming. And therein lies the greatest miracle of the Nativity, when the God and Creator of heaven and earth first revealed himself in person to the world at large. He chose to do so in the form of an infant, helpless and dependent, born in the same manner as any human being was ever born. An ancient Hebrew tradition held that the Messiah would be born at Passover. And from astronomical calculation, we know that April 6th, in the meridian of time, indeed fell in the week of the Passover feast. That sacred Jewish commemoration of Israel's salvation from the destroying angel that brought death to the firstborn sons of Egypt. It was a salvation granted to each Israelite family who sacrificed a lamb and smeared its blood on the wooden doorposts of their dwelling. Thirty-three years after his Passover birth, Christ's blood would be smeared on the wooden posts of a cross to save his people from the destroying angels of death and sin. Since April 6 was the high day of the Passover feast, that Jewish commemoration may have been the reason why there was no room at the inn. The population of Jerusalem swelled by tens of thousands during the Passover, forcing travelers to seek accommodations in outlying towns. Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem, the home of Joseph's forefathers, to fulfill the requirements of an imperial census that had been ordered by Caesar Augustus. The census required that they make their appearance in their hometown, Bethlehem, any time during the year, but they very likely chose the Passover season since it was also a requirement of the Mosaic Law that all males present themselves in Jerusalem at the Passover. And so, since Bethlehem was virtually next door to the Holy City, the couple from Nazareth could take care of two obligations at once. 
Now, the innkeeper, as we know, has come down in history with somewhat of a notorious reputation. Yet given the crowding that took place throughout the region of Jerusalem at Passover with tens of thousands of visitors, we can hardly blame him for having no room to offer the couple from Nazareth. While the majority of Passover pilgrims would have camped out in thousands of goatskin tents pinched pitched on the plains around Jerusalem, thousands of others sought refuge in the local inns, also known as caravansaries or khans. The inn in Bethlehem, no doubt, was overflowing with guests, and the innkeeper's offering of the stable was very likely an act of genuine kindness. Even had Mary and Joseph found room in the inn, it would, offer, it would have offered only the most primitive accommodations. A typical con of the period was a stone structure consisting of a series of small rooms, each with only three walls and open to public view on the inside. Crowded and noisy, the rooms were devoid of furniture, and the con provided no services of any kind. The stable itself was likely a walled courtyard or even a limestone cave where animals belonging to the guests were kept. But whether courtyard, cave, or other refuge, Christ's birth among the animals did have one conspicuous advantage over the crowded interior of the inn. Here, at least, was to be found peace and privacy. In this sense, the offering of the stable was a blessing, allowing the most sacred birth in human history to take place in reverent solitude. Seven hundred years before that first Christmas, the prophet Isaiah penned a messianic prophecy, which the Savior later read to his fellow villagers of Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now, when we read of Christ proclaiming liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, we probably think of his ministry in the spirit world among the dead. But now listen closely and carefully, my brothers and sisters, for I want you not to forget what I tell you now. You and I, all of us, we are all captives, every one of us, and we all have need to be set free. We are all captive to the corruption and the weakness of mortal bodies, subject to the temptations of the flesh, to infirmity, and ultimately to death. We are captives to sin and to the wages of sin, to guilt and the lonely withdrawal of the Lord's Spirit whenever we disobey. We are in bondage to bad habits, indulgences, false ways of thinking, and even sometimes to addictions, both physical and spiritual. 
We are captive to mistakes, to errors and wrong turns taken in the past, to painful memories of precious things lost, time squandered, and regrets of what might have been had we only chosen more wisely. We are captives to ignorance and worldly distractions, and hence oblivious to the glory of God that lies all about and around us. And finally, all of us, in some degree, are captives of pride, the greatest prison of all, the most common human sin, that great counterfeit of spiritual strength that substitutes carnal imagination and self-obsession for the true freedom that is found only in meekness. Whatever it may be that binds us, whatever sins, circumstances, or past events hold each of us captive, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great Emmanuel, has come to set us free. He proclaims liberty to the captives, freedom from the bonds of death and the prison of sin, ignorance, pride, and error. Of him it is written that he led captivity captive. Of him it is prophesied that he shall say to the prisoners, Go forth. The only condition of our own freedom is that we come unto him with broken hearts and contrite spirits and seek to do his will. About thirty years ago I met a man who won freedom from spiritual captivity through the redeeming power of Christ. This European man, whom I will call Thomas, was forty-five years old when I met him. Twenty years earlier he had been a young man of only twenty-five when his parents met the missionaries and joined the Church. Thomas, who considered himself an atheist, had no interest in his parents' religion. But his mother loved him, and she treasured the hope in her heart that someday, somehow, her son might be brought to know the truth of the restored gospel. <clears throat> As years passed, his mother tried many ways to persuade her son to just meet with the missionaries and hear their message. He refused again and again, and he mocked his parents for their religious faith. One day, in desperation, his mother tried a new approach. She said, Thomas, if you will take the missionary discussions just one time, then I will never again talk to you about the Church. Well, Thomas, tired of his mother's pleadings, decided this was a good bargain. He agreed to meet with the missionaries. The elders who taught him reported that he had no interest at all in the Church and no belief in God. During the first three discussions, he simply sat there full of pride, occasionally making fun of what the elders were trying to teach him. The only reason they even went back is because they knew of his mother's love for him and the agreement between them. The fourth discussion came, which was then about the Atonement of Christ and the first principles of the gospel. Thomas said nothing at all as they taught him. But they noticed that he grew silent, and he listened closely to the discussion. 
At the end of the lesson, they bore their testimonies of Christ. Thomas simply sat there looking at them, saying nothing. One of the missionaries felt prompted to open his Bible to the book of Matthew and read these words. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Suddenly, without warning, Tomas burst into tears. He sobbed like a child for the longest time, and he said, Are you trying to say that Christ would forgive me of my sins? I have lived a terrible life. I am haunted by the memory of my sins. I would do anything to be freed of the guilt I feel. All of his pride had only been a facade that hid a soul captive to sin and guilt. The elders assured Thomas that Christ would forgive him and free him from his burden of guilt if he would but repent and be baptized. They bore testimony once more to him of the power of Christ's Atonement. And from that moment on, everything changed in the life of Thomas. He had much to repent of and much to overcome. But through the blessings of the Lord and to the amazement of his mother and father, he was able to qualify for baptism. He became a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. More than twenty years later, I sat in the chapel of the Frankfurt Temple, waiting for an endowment session to begin. There was a gray-haired, elderly man sitting in front of me who all at once turned around and said, Aren't you Elder Porter? To my great joy, I recognized it was Thomas, still faithful and true in the Church, a man truly freed from bondage by the power of Jesus Christ. Perhaps this Christmas season we might each resolve to approach our Father in Heaven humbly in prayer and petition the power of His beloved Son to be with us in our daily walk and to free us from our own bondages, our own personal forms of captivity, be they great or small. Now, I have had many witnesses in my life of the reality of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I will share only one in conclusion. In December 1987, about two weeks before Christmas, I was asked by the federal agency where I worked to go to Israel on government business. I had been to Israel many times before, but never at the Christmas season. I was looking forward to it. But unfortunately, it turned out not to be a peaceful time in the Holy Land, as the first Palestinian Intifada had begun, the revolt of the local Arab population against Israeli rule. There were riots in the West Bank, and the streets of Jerusalem were deserted, the Arab shops boarded up. There was political tension in the air, and to make matters worse, a cold rain drizzled most of the week.
The whole city bore a dreary aspect. Fearful of violence, the tourists stayed away in droves that year. And yet as I walked through Jerusalem, peace filled my heart to know that this was the city Christ loved so much, the very place of his eternal sacrifice, to know that on these stone streets the Redeemer of all mankind had walked. I returned to the United States late on a Friday evening, only six days before Christmas. When the Sabbath dawned two days later, my alarm woke me to the music of the hymn, O Holy Night, and I heard these words, The King of Kings lay thus in lowly manger, in all our trials born to be our friend. The music and the message pierced me deeply, and tears overflowed as I contemplated the glorious sacrifice and the perfect life of the Redeemer of Israel, He who was born to be the friend of the lowly and the hope of the meek. I thought of my experience in Jerusalem, and love flooded through my whole being for Him who had come to earth and taken upon Himself the burdens of us all. I was overwhelmed to think that He might regard me as a friend. I have never forgotten the tender feelings of that early Sunday morning, as pure a witness as I ever received. So to you now at this Christmas season, I leave my witness of the Savior of the world. I know that He lives. I know that He was anointed before the creation of the world to proclaim liberty to the captives. He was born of Mary in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth. He taught the gospel in Galilee, Jerusalem, and throughout Judea, Samaria, and Perea. He lived a perfect life. He suffered in Gethsemane and was crucified for the sins of the world. He rose again on the third day and stands enthroned in the heavens above at the right hand of our Heavenly Father. Of his birth and life, I can only say, O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord, of whom I bear witness in his own name, even the name of the Lord Emmanuel. In the name of Yesu, the Lord of our desiring, even in the holy name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Fear Not, A Child Is Born, with thoughts from Lloyd Newell and Elder Bruce D. Porter. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.